The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Hi, I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange. This is Conversations with Kelly, where I take a deep dive with an expert on a topic I'm particularly interested in. And frankly, my main interest right now is the U.S. economy. We're in a really unusual situation where consumer spending is high, but sentiment is low, where inflation is here for the first time in decades, where the Fed is only just starting to raise rates, where parts of the market like the NASDAQ are in their worst corrections in over a decade nearly, on top of that, we have a war on Ukraine and the constant threat of COVID to worry about. We have people warning about recessions and stagflation and a lot of other nasty outcomes. And it's hard to tell what's really going on right now. So let's ask my next guest. Stephen Rusciuto is the chief U.S. economist at Mizuho. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. By the way, how did you end up at Mizuho? You've been there a while now. I have been at Mizuho for a while. Um, you know, it was a natural progression for me um, in terms of uh, my movement around in, in different uh, financial institutions. Um, and, and I think, you know, my, my linkage with some of the uh, former management of the institution here made an easy transition for me to get into Mizuho uh, after I had been spent a good deal of time at uh, Svenska Handelsbanken and uh, before that at Avian Amro. So, um, uh, it was a natural progression to move to the the Japanese uh, portion of the uh, of the financial services side. And given you know my previous experience with other foreign entities such as ABN Amro, which was Dutch, uh, and Barclays Bank, um, which of course we all know is from the UK, uh, it was a natural leg in uh, into the um, uh, working again at, at a dealership uh, for a foreign sovereign country, uh, yeah. foreign for a foreign bank. Excuse me. I and I don't want to infer anything about your age, so I'm curious: <laughs> were were you at all kind of uh, professionally paying attention during the inflation of the 1970s? Uh, the answer is yes, I am old. Um, and yes, I do remember uh, those days. Um, I was in graduate school for a portion of it, but I was uh, working um, on the street uh, at the time for a firm called Donaldson, Lufkin and Jenrette at yeah. the time of Paul Volcker's Saturday Night Massacre in October of 1979 when he revolutionized monetary policy away from a Keynesian model to a monetarist model. Um, so I have seen uh, the upward movement in interest rates. I saw short-term interest rates spike out one night at 26%, uh, and I've seen them come all the way down to zero. So yeah, it has been an interesting ride. I'm actually so glad that, that you kind of lived through that experience. I'd like to ask about it a little bit. Um, what was the conventional wisdom at the time? Like, did everybody go, okay, we know the old, like we need you know, we know the old models are dead. We need Volcker to come in and, you know, kind of transform it. Like, was he doing stuff that people in the market wanted him to do and he just finally caught up to that? Or was he doing stuff that people were a little nervous about him doing and didn't know if it would work? Uh, it, it, you know, the real reality of the situation is it was a revolution. Uh, it was a revolution, however, took place in a very, very disorderly environment. Um, you have to remember, um, you know, his decision in October 1979 came on the backdrop of him coming back 
uh, from an IMF meeting um, where uh, the collapse in the dollar was a hot topic. Hmm. And clearly it was not only inflation, but it was a declining dollar. Uh, we had moved off the gold standard. Um, you know, there was a lot going on uh, at the same time. And we were following uh, an environment of monetary policy that had made sense uh, in the post-war era and things were rapidly changing and there was some sense that something needed to be done. Was there a consensus that monetarism uh, was the right thing to do? The answer is no. It was a bold undertaking at the time uh, hmm. and it took some um, convincing uh, of the members of the committee and it took some convincing of government officials, um, especially the oversight portions of the Federal Reserve to come to realize that something had to be done. Now, there was a good deal of academic literature at the time relating to the linkage between money supply growth and inflation uh, that led a credible backdrop to what the chairman was doing. Um, but again, when he announced the change uh, and people began scrambling to try to figure out what it meant, there was a considerable period between the announcement of the change and the first real tightenings. And then there was this sort of disbelief in terms of how far interest rates would eventually have to go um, and how far they actually did go before he felt comfortable that the, uh, you know, the, the inflation spiral had been broken. Yeah. Uh, and and remember, this go, ahead. go ahead. No, and remember, there was a lot of pushback from fiscal policy because monetary policy is effectively demand management. Um, and at the same time, you had Ronald Reagan's supply side process that was saying, well, the real problem with the equation is not that there's too much demand, there's not enough supply. So we have to create the supply to match the demand and then inflation will come down as well. So we kind of attacked the problem from two sides, uh, which is the interesting thing about that period. Where in this environment, we're clearly attacking it primarily from one side. Yeah, there's so much about what you said that really gives context for what we're dealing with now. First of all, the dollar's not collapsing. The opposite is true. Uh, it's, it's at highs, which creates its own problems. But again, different backdrop. We definitely, you know, for all the intentions maybe to improve the supply side uh, of the economy with uh, the Build Back Better and things like that, I think most of the conventional wisdom is that's just not what we're seeing take place right now. And thirdly, I was going to say, you know, I think people need to realize the Volcker approach didn't work right away. And that's why it, it's interesting to me to think through how this experiment would be lived out in real life. When he sent the economy into a deep recession, there was a double dip recession in the early 80s, if I have the dates right. You know, we had that first okay. little downturn, then he jacked up rates, then we had a really bad downturn. And Today, when so much of the Fed's emphasis is on making sure that we don't hurt employment, that we don't hurt wages and all of that, you know, I can't even imagine how that would be communicated right now. If, if Can you? Uh, you know, the, the Fed ha does have a very, very different mindset now than it did then. And you have to remember, the global backdrop is different. Coming out of World War II, you had a world of excess demand. Um, here, we've been living with a world of excess supply. And we've been living with deflationary pressures as opposed to inflationary pressures for a very long period of time. And you could argue that the global infrastructure of deflation has not been destroyed by COVID or, for that matter, even the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. 
Uh, the resources are there. We just have to go about and getting them, and we just have to allow them to function, which we aren't currently doing. So that's part of the impetus for the problem we have. But the, the situation goes even deeper than that in terms of the policy response. If you look at what created stagflation and what created the wage price spiral that followed on the backdrop of it, you know, the first energy embargoes caught America at a point in time where its capital infrastructure was highly energy inefficient. Um, it was steam-powered plant. And as a result of steam power plants, when you shut a steam power plant down, uh, the plant basically goes obsolete. Today, we do not have steam-fired plants. We have electric-fired plants. You can shut them down and turn them on and off whenever you want, and they don't go obsolete. Hmm. Two, we've had computer controls on these technologies, where back then we had analog, analog controls on these technologies. So the, the technology infrastructure is very, very different uh, overlaying this. The demographics were different. Uh, we had the baby boomers coming of age and having a boom in children themselves, the millennials, um, which, you know, the millennials are fully of age now, but the millennials didn't have kids. You know, if you'd locked the baby boomers in their homes for six to nine months with their spouse, there would have been a baby boom on the other <laughs> side of it. You lock the millennials in rooms with their spouse or their significant others, and you come out and there's a baby bus because they have dogs and they have Pelotons. Um, so, you know, you wind up with very, very different demographics. The Xers, which followed the baby boomers, um, were a much smaller cohort, where the Zs that follow the millennial were an even bigger, big, even smaller cohort uh, mm. than you have with regard to the drop-off between the boomers and the Xers. In addition to all these factors, Ronald Reagan fired the air traffic controllers, uh, which was the first time there was a government pushback against the government union uh, since before World War II. And the net result was corporate America, uh, looked at that as an opportunity to begin to push back on corporations, where you got to remember the Volcker recession was very, very deep, very, very long, and it started to weaken the collective bargaining power of unions. Hmm. So when we entered uh, the wage price spiral, 35% of the population on the private side was unionized. Less than 4% is unionized today. Um, and those union contracts had automatic cost of living adjustments. So there was a direct linkage between prices and wages, which doesn't exist today. Great point. Although so we do, of course, have, you know, probably a larger percentage of the population on things like Social Security that are, you know, linked to the inflation rate. But I want to actually kind of pick up one other thing. There's a couple things I'll circle back to. But, you know, let's talk for a second about how Volcker introduced kind of the monetary framework as um, something he was targeting or using to gauge inflation and ultimately bring it down. And as a result of his victory, the monetary framework went away, right? Like the Fed stopped publishing monetary variables basically in the past decade or two. And there's, you know, it always is a favorite uh, talking point of conspiracy theorists. But I think that now that the Bitcoin generation is educating themselves about money supply, you know, looking at M1, looking at M2, trying to understand what these mean and why the Fed doesn't really focus on them anymore. What happened? How did the monetarist victory turn into a monetarist defeat? Financial innovation. Financial innovation clearly changed the linkage between transactions variables um, and savings variables. Um, at the time of the Volcker revolution, there was a clear delineation between those um, bank liabilities that were savings oriented and those bank liabilities that were transactions oriented. As time went on and we began paying interest on checking account deposits and things like that, the line between what was a transactions balance and a savings balance 
got blurred. And as that line continued to blur um, over time, it made the monetary aggregates less and less reliable in terms of indicating transactions demand in the economy. And when you go back and look at the basic monetary principles, um, you know, espoused by um, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz, you're looking at transactions related purchases. And if you can't identify transactions balances, you really can't implement a monetarist model. So does the monetarist um, do sort of money, money um, aggregates still have some relevance because it is still a good way to look at the quote unquote monetary base, to look at its expansion over the last couple of years and to understand how much dry powder there is in the economy to fuel the kind of sustained inflation we could be seeing. Well, there's no doubt that the type of expansion in the monetary base, as you talk about it, which is essentially uh, vault cash and currency in circulation, um, you know, you, you, you wind up with an environment of you throw $5.3 trillion at an economy this size, you're going to have a, a one-time permanent adjustment in price levels. Uh, whether or not that becomes a sustained movement in inflation is a very, very different story. Um, during the transition from one price level to the next price level on aggregate, there will be an inflationary development. The question is whether or not you continue to move to higher price levels. And this is where the balance sheet becomes very, very important to discuss. Because if the Fed just simply stops growing the balance sheet, the impulse for the price level to continue to rise will dissipate over time. Um, and I honestly believe it would be a mistake for the Federal Reserve uh, to attempt to reverse the balance sheet at this point in time. Really? Um, yeah, I, I think the um, this is the first time we have dealt with a banking industry with total free reserves. There are no ex there are no required reserves in the banking system right now. But in addition to that, the banking industry has morphed in many many ways. Um, we have quasi financial institutions. Uh, that are big, powerful, and um, they themselves are dealing as banks and they are holding uh, some level of reserves in the system and they are not regulated. Uh, then we have the new fintech-related businesses, which have never had to hold required reserves. Uh, but again, they're holding reserves onto their own balance sheets for, uh, you know, for purposes of making sure they can meet transactions demand. Um, and we don't have enough experience yet to realize what level of precautionary balances this banking industry as it exists today requires. But and, do you think they need $5 trillion of extra? So I totally take your point that, you know, you don't really want to kind of drain all the liquidity from a system where you don't know how much, you know, of a, of a secular shift to a higher level is needed. But can you leave a couple hundred billion and go, yeah, that's probably enough. Well, I mean, I, the, the problem is getting there, True. you know, finding out the level that is important, unfortunately, is not an easy task and trying to do it, not only do the balance sheet, but do interest rate adjustments at exactly the same time led to the 2018, 2019 problem for the Federal Reserve, where oh. they were forced to reverse gears rather abruptly. And therefore, we've been telling the Federal Reserve, do one at a time. Don't try to do both at once. Um, if you want to scale back the balance sheet to get it back to a Treasury-only portfolio, that's fine. Let the MBS portion roll off over time. 
uh, but you do not deal with the treasury portion of the balance sheet until you've completed your interest rate normalization. Because what we've discovered over time is that there are unintended consequences to everything we do. So therefore, there are unintended consequences to raising rates and there are unintended consequences to squeezing the balance sheet. And what we've also discovered over time is that when you do two things at once, there is a covariance between these unintended consequences, which is positive, which means it's not just the unintended consequences from each one of these you're dealing with. It's right. the unintended consequences from each one of them, plus their covariance. Yeah, no. So let me ask this then. If you're, and I take your point about, you know, inflation, that the monetary base adjustment sort of pushes a one-time price reset, but the question is, does it keep going? And this is really, really important because there's more talk about a wage price spiral, but would the monetary conditions ultimately have to support that? In other words, can you have a wage price spiral that doesn't have monetary accommodation allowing it to happen? Because at some point when I think through it, I go, okay, Maybe I ask for 8% hike this year on my wages. Maybe I ask for you know, 7% next year. But at some point, if my firm cannot pay that, then they're going to employ fewer people, say no, whatever you have. So do you need continued monetary expansion in order to keep a wage price spiral uh, taking place? The, the reality is you don't necessarily need it if there is a direct linkage between wages and prices. And I go back to your point earlier about Social Security recipients relative to pension uh, recipients or relative to wage and salary recipients. You know, yes, there are Social Security recipients in this point in time that do have a linkage between um, their um, income and inflation. But again, they are at the declining portion of their um, of their income spectrum, where in the 70s, it was mm. in the heart of the income spectrum. And the reality was the inflation was overstated at that point in time. So more wage and pricing, more pricing purchasing power was being created in an environment of excess demand. And that, again, is a critical difference between this period and the previous period in that this period there has been a world of excess supply coming into the shock that we've created to the system. And to no extent has the infrastructure of that excess supply been depleted by COVID. So you have to assume at the end of the day that that excess supply situation is still there. And in fact, if you look at the cyclical side of the equation, uh, global GDP output gaps are exceptionally wide. So there is a good downward bias on the um, inflation side. Um, from the deflationary forces that are out there, which didn't exist back in the 70s. So again, the answer is, you know, you may, you may wind up with an unintended result of playing with the balance sheet. You're better off letting it sit and see what happens, um, whether you need to do something on the balance sheet rather than whether or not you feel you need to have something to do with the balance sheet, because we honestly don't have any empirical evidence that would suggest what level of balance sheet is necessary. Yeah, no, it, it's a great point. There's been a debate about whether they should hike rates or do balance sheet. And some have argued maybe balance sheet could allow for a steeper yield curve by selling longer end securities, or maybe um, it would be less damaging than you know raising rates. So this is very much a live debate that as you're talking, I realize no one really knows the answer. 
Um, but to your point, maybe that would suggest the Fed should be a little cautious about doing one than the other. Let me ask you about the labor market. I'm sure you probably saw the Wall Street Journal profile this week of Charles Goodhart, the British economist, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, who has been making the case for the last uh, year or so that the demographics that you're talking about, which we've previously been looking at as deflationary, will become inflationary because of a shortage of workers. So a couple of stats that certainly caught my attention. China is going to lose 100 million workers over the next 15 years. Correct. Germany is already importing or trying to import 40,000 skilled laborers a year. And we all know what's happening with the fertility rate and the direction that this is going. So on its own, how much can a worker shortage contribute to lasting inflation? What you have to understand is the worker shortage is a double-edged sword. Okay, there are less workers, that means there's less demand, as well as there is less supply. What about so, robots? Excuse me? I guess you're well, right. Ro robots could fill supply, but they can't, <laughs> they can't really create demand. If you have fewer and fewer people in order to buy products, and if you're on the other side of your life cycle where you're buying fewer and fewer products, and you're not trading up and going to bigger homes and everything else in that nature, and you're downsizing, do you need as, not, as much product? Uh, and this is why, you know, an analysis like his really looks at one side of the equation and tries to draw conclusions from one side of the equation. The problem is you have to look at both sides of the equation. If where population is shrinking, that means demand is also shrinking. We don't know a priori whether demand shrinks more quickly than supply shrinks. But in a world of technological innovation like we've been experiencing, you have to argue that the supply is less likely to be an issue than the demand. True. So where does that and therefore lead? I look at those arguments and I say, you know, they sound really, really pretty, but I, I, I can't tell you that they're correct. In fact, I have a gut instinct and only a gut instinct that they're wrong. Do you think then that we're going to have, you know, and when I say high inflation, maybe three or four percent for the next couple of years before things kind of revert to normal, i.e. deflationary? Um, or then how does this change? sort of the urgency in the calculus for the Fed, do you think then they should be going it slow right now and just saying, you know what, this problem's going to take care of itself if everyone just waits a little while? Well, I mean, I think the Fed has put itself in a box where it has to, has to go. I think the Fed initially laid out inarticulately what they meant by a transitory inflationary problem. By time the chairman explicitly made it clear what he meant by transitory, which is a permanent one-time upward adjustment in prices, it was already too late, and he had let the inflation hawks out of the bottle. Um, and now they're kind of trapped in this environment, and now they've gotten into the inflation, the inflation hawk mentality. Um, and unfortunately, they're probably going to continue it until they break something, uh, which is what tends to happen because monetary policy tends, like most policies, tends to come a little bit late uh, and stay a little bit longer than it should. And markets tend to pick up on this and tend to push very, very rapidly, which is why markets tend to be much more volatile um, in the post-Volcker period than does the economy. And people project a lot of stuff about economics that never comes true because the markets kind of diffuse a lot of that from happening. And that's what I think is happening here again as well. I think we're already at the point in time where the economy is showing significant evidence of a rollover. Um, and I think it will be the Fed will be late to recognize it. And in the end, the Fed will have had forward interest rates discount more rate hikes than they will in the end need to do. And that's just, you know, the nature of, final, of the beast in which we're dealing with. Final question then, because 
it's funny. I so I totally see all of your points. And at the same time, I look at kind of the snapshot just today, looking at where inflation expectations have gone, what that means for real rates, the fact that they'd have to hike rates just to catch up with inflation expectations, the fact that they've seemed to way underestimate sort of the nominal demand boom we're seeing. I mean, the last several employment reports are the strongest we've had in over 20 years. You know, it's really unusual this late in a recovery to get 400 and 500 and 600,000 jobs added month after month. So even despite all everything you're saying, it still feels like the Fed is way behind the curve here. Well, again, this is not a typical recovery. You're still 2.2 million behind where you were at the peak before the COVID recession. Um, and the argument that you lay out about how strong the, the employment numbers are at this point in a business cycle certainly goes to the point that the labor market wasn't as tight as the Fed has been saying it was. Because you can't have 600 plus thousand gains in employment in a tight labor market environment. And that's the inherent contradiction, contradiction in the data that the Fed's not paying attention to. And by the same token, the um, reduction that we're seeing in compensation, or I should say in real purchasing power for households, um, is significant. You just have to look at the uh, PPI number that came out this morning where, you know, the goods component was all of the inflation, which is primarily food and energy um, and goods that households buy and use, and yet the service component slowed rather dramatically. And the goods component uh, is a much smaller section of the overall economy than is the service component. And the PPI, I think the goods make up something along the lines of about 15 to 18 percent, and the services make up something along the lines of 50 percent. So to a great extent, you know, we're, we're already seeing a substantial portion of the inflation numbers slowing down. And it came through in this morning's PPI number in, in flying colors. So again, is the Fed behind the equation or is the Fed behind the equation for market expectations? And market expectations are notoriously wrong, which is why economists always talk about how many recessions the equity market called that never occurred. Right. Nine of the last five or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen, we'll leave it there. Uh, this has been such a great discussion. I appreciate sort of a, the historical comparisons as well uh, to what we're going through. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Again, my guest has been Stephen Rusciuto from Mizuho. Thanks for listening, everybody. And be sure to follow the Exchange podcast for more discussions like this one and catch our show live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern only on CNBC. See you then. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.